Hello and welcome to another episode of the Voxploration Podcast. Today, our special guest is Ronnie Malley. Ronnie is a Chicago native of Palestinian descent, a multi-instrumentalist, singer, author, songwriter, film composer, playwright, actor, sound engineer, educator, businessman, and the father of two young girls. His creative output is nothing short of impressive, and his quest for knowledge of all things in life somewhat insatiable. In talking to him, I realized how his ability to speak and sing in several languages and play various instruments at a young age was influential to how he acquired knowledge and skills outside of music skills which later served him very well in the music business. And the combination of all these skills make him a very unique human being. That's why I decided to come up with that catchy little title for the episode. I really think of him as a polymath because a modern polymath, in my opinion, is someone who becomes qualified in many different fields and is able to integrate them uniquely and effectively. Learning plays a huge role in that, and to become a lifelong learner, one must have a serious passion, an obsession for learning, and the secret to learning is to make it a habit. And all of it starts with curiosity and belief in the fact that no matter how young or how old, we can all learn something new. I'm fascinated with the diversity of languages you speak. Tell me, how did you learn so many languages in different dialects? I grew up in uh, an Arabic-speaking family, so Arabic is my maternal tongue as well. The dialect that we spoke primarily, though, was Palestinian dialect of Arabic, which was Levantine dialect. My dad, because of music, would have his friends come over, some of whom spoke French, some of whom for, were from like Tunisia or various other places. I would hear it and I would just kind of like start to mock it and mimic it. <laughs> you know, like one of his friends was always speaking with Arabic, but with a French accent. And when he'd speak to his wife, who was French, it was just sounded like to me. <laughs> so the other Arabic dialects you picked up were from musician friends who came to the house. What are they? Moroccan dialect, Iraqi dialect, Lebanese dialect, Egyptian dialect. And all of these things had an influence in how we interacted and got to know people and their customs. How old were you when you started performing with your family? When I was probably eight is when we had our family band and we started to perform regularly. And then, you know, fast forward that we played with the family band for, you know, the next 15 years as uh, a family band doing, doing jobbing, you know, commercial work. We had a regular gig at the club. We would do festivals, events, and then weddings. I understand that with your family, you were performing mostly Middle Eastern music. What about other styles of music? My brother and I had rock bands at the same time that we were doing you know, Middle Eastern music. So it's this weird dichotomy of being Arab-American, right? That whole time, were you making a living solely in music? I ask that because many people and cultures don't recognize music as a real career. 
you know, I did have to get a real job, as they said. So I got into retail management and, and then eventually I got into banking. And then my cousin said, hey, I'm starting this real estate appraisal company on the side of my real estate company. If I pay for your license, would you want to become one? And so I did. <laughs> oh, wow. So now I'm curious to know how you made your way back into music. What changed it? So about 2004, George Bush Jr. got reelected and I couldn't handle it anymore. I thought to myself, here I am working in the corporate world, paying these taxes to a country that's going to kill my people, basically. I needed a change. I had studied French in high school and throughout college, but never used it. And I thought, well, this is as good a time as any to go to France. Uh, it was really spending the time abroad, though, that opened up my eyes to understanding that I can be a full-time artist, a full-time musician. And then how did you join the musical workforce then? Well, you know, when I went out there, I didn't have anything. It, it's a strange sense when you work in the, the workforce, the job world, shall I say. You have this false sense of security that I've got a job, I've got a paycheck coming in. Whereas an artist, I don't have to explain to you, sometimes we're like, all right, well, well, I'm going to have a can of tuna today. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you do when you came back? What kinds of gigs? I, I put up an ad actually at a music store when I was in Paris to teach oud and guitar. And within like a month, I, I got like 10 students. And I thought, wow, you know, people want to learn about this. And so after my little stint there, which was for about a couple of years in, in Paris, I decided to come back and I, I thought to myself, if I can do something with art abroad in, you know, in a foreign country, why can't I do this in Chicago, you know, my, my hometown? Mm -hmm. You know, I took any gig. I, I, I did an acting gig. Uh, I did, uh, you know, at a haunted house. I, I took some jobs with a friend who had uh, a jazz band that was doing like Afro jazz kind of styles. When I came back, I rekindled two groups that I worked with here. One was a circus punk marching band called Mukapatsa. And I also uh, finished up an album with my uh, group Lama Jamal, which mm -hmm. was a world music group. We From what parts of the world? Greek, Balkan, Middle Eastern, uh, Jewish styles of music and North African. And uh, we just started getting a bunch of gigs and I thought, hey, I'm going to put all my business experience to use and apply it to running a business with these music groups. So a bit of a recap. By now, you are speaking a dozen dialects of Arabic, you're speaking French, you had been on stage with your family, done rock and roll with your brother, taught oud guitar, had a lot of experience running businesses, and wait, there's more. You just mentioned your work in theater. How did that come to be? I got a call to be a co-arranger and to help assemble a group, a trio, for a uh, theatrical production happening at the Goodman Theater. And the production was called Mirror of the Invisible World by the Tony Award-winning director Mary Zimmerman. And we were on set and we ended up becoming in-costume musicians on the stage performing for this piece from a 13th century writer, Nizam al-Din Alia. What was the plot? It's this king, Bayram, who... who goes, visits several temples to marry a different, uh, a woman from a different culture. In hindsight, probably somewhat misogynistic, yeah. but I didn't write the story. <laughs> so, uh, but I was tasked with helping consult on the cultural aspects of it. Uh -huh. And where were the ladies from? He has a Moroccan queen, a Persian queen, a North African queen, a Turkish, Russian, and Indian. And so we had to play some music to suit each of these categories. I brought literally an arsenal of, of instruments with me from harmonium, oud, to darbukas, accordion, a variety of different things. Some I played really well, and some I'm just like, all right, I'm going to learn how to play this for the show. And so that's when I picked up a, a dolak, uh, an Indian folk drum, and I, I figured out a few things with it, but I promised myself after 
after the show, I said, this is the way I'm going to actually continue studying other world music. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately went and found uh, a guru to teach me tabla. He spoke very limited English, but he was a, an old Bollywood veteran, Puran Lal Vyas. And your guru, how did he teach you? So the first thing we started to do was just learn to speak the language of the, the drums. You know, I related to that because we did a lot of that with Middle Eastern music as well, which is what helped me understand the dialects of Arabic. Interesting. Can you talk more about the connection between rhythm and language? You learn a rhythm of a culture and you'll start to understand how they speak and the way their rhythmic inflections affect their rhythms, their indigenous rhythms for that matter. For example, in, in Arabic, if we do something like a dum dum takatak dum takatak takadum dum takatak dum takatak Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a 4-4 thing. And, and I discovered that, you know, through the Levant and Egyptian uh, dialects, 4-4 is the pervasive time signature. They actually speak in that way, too. Like, أهلاً وسهلاً كيف حالكم؟ إن شاء الله كل شيء تمام اليوم. And in saying these kinds of things, you place a vowel in a certain place to speak. And then that rhythm kind of becomes almost like a 4-4 way of talking. Interesting. When I started learning a lot more Moroccan music, a lot of their music was much more on the upbeat. And it had more things like... You know, one perfect word to know is in Levantine and Egyptian Arabic, we might say... Habibi, where if you're in North Africa and you're speaking like a Moroccan dialect, you're saying Habibi, Habibi. And, and you're almost eliminating one of the vowels to kind of just cut short. And it becomes almost like an upbeat, very much to the way 6-8 dominates the time signatures of their culture. So the same idea applies, of course, to Indian music as well. And I assume that's how you learned Hindi, yes? When I started to learn like the Indian stuff, Uh, the first thing he's like, okay, da din din da da din din da ta tin tin ta ta din din da. I thought, okay, what what is this? And it turns out that those are syllables from from the Hindi alphabet, from Sanskrit. Until I started to really dig deeper and understand that I need to learn this language in order to play this music better, and uh, plus also to communicate with my guru, who didn't speak a lot of English, and eventually that straight kind of way of saying da din din became da din din da da din din da ta din din da ta din din da ta 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 and i just became like wow i'm i'm beatboxing with indian so being able to speak several languages and master many different musical styles must have given you a special kind of fluency in being able to navigate between different worlds and even styles of music. And that is sometimes called bi-musicality. Yeah. Well, it's it's an ethnomusicology term. One of my friends, Mehmet Sokanlal, is a fabulous Turkish musician and composer in New York. Uh, he coined the term musical tourists. When, you know, you find folks sometimes that come in and they, they dabble a little bit in a musical style, enough that they might get a flavor, you know, like, here's a new spice that I've learned to use as opposed to understanding a full cuisine, if you will, or a new recipe. And that's the difference between being bi-musical and being just a musical tourist. Cool. So let's take a step back. When you came back from France, it seems that that's when you got into super high gear as far as learning things. Is it, is it right? I just 
poured myself into everything artistic. And that didn't include just performance. That was also production and a lot of education and lectures at like ethnomusicology classes. Uh, and I started to do Arabic language residency programs at Chicago Public Schools. And all of those things led me to understanding learning in general. And what is learning? It's why I advocate strongly today that playing an instrument, especially music, doing any form of art is beyond just practicing that specific art. It's practicing a thought process that helps you develop plasticity in your mind, that helps you create new neural pathways that you can learn. It's in essence exercising your brain. And I think if most of us do that on a regular basis, you know, that learning becomes habitual. It becomes, you know, a process. It becomes part of your routine. Mm -hmm. And what you just said about the brain and learning, how do you feel about learning these new things, new tricks, new languages at a later age? How do you think that learning about other cultures helps you grow? The one fundamental thing I've always understood is human beings are the most adaptable creatures on the planet. And it's just a matter of not putting those roadblocks in front of us to stop us and think, well, I can't do that or I can't do that. And just think, I can try to do that. I can try to do this. You know, I didn't think I'm going to become the professional tabla player, the next Zakir Hussein or anything like that. But that road, you know, then led me. Uh, I, I got students who wanted their parents wanted them to learn Indian music. I started to perform with uh, other Indian musicians. Uh, and I thought, wow, here I'm doing it with this culture. I'm going to try it with this culture now and apply all of the things I learned in that process to learning about Turkish culture, Greek culture, to becoming kind of like an applied ethnomusicologist, consulting on global music that was in my wheelhouse. You know, one of the things that I'm most curious about and interested in is our capacity to learn, retain, recall, and apply information. Can you talk a little bit about your learning process? A great deal of my learning process was experiential. I realized my weakness, if you will, was I didn't take the time to stop and actually reflect on what I had learned and all these things I knew because I was busy doing it. And so that's when I started to understand different pathways of learning, you know, divergent, reflective. And, and I mean, I've been an autodidact all my life, and it's just been you know, a love of learning. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a lifelong pursuit. Yes, it is indeed. Though you are versed in many types of music and skills, it is not possible for us to be fluent in everything that surrounds us, right? So how do you navigate a situation outside of your comfort zone? So one time I was asked to do that for a, a Chinese play, Chinese story, shall I say, called The White Snake. Mm -hmm. They knew me as somebody who knew how to explore a world music, maintaining respect for the tradition. And so uh, I looked at it as another case study. I did not know that music so well, but I started by looking at the classical traditions of Chinese music, Peking opera and, and different operatic styles. And did you encounter similarities between the styles of music you already knew? I was running on a treadmill and I was just listening to stuff just to get it in my ears, you know, to hear the instrumentation, where I can go with inflection. Because East Asian music is is very different if you're if you just start listening to it, right? But as I'm running on this treadmill, I'm hearing that and it went to shuffle on my iPod to uh, an Um Kulthum, old Egyptian classic orchestra. And it hit me right there. I was like, wait a minute. These are like counterparts of the same instruments. There's a lot of similarity. And, I, and from hearing the Um Kulthum Egyptian thing and getting my ears tuned back to my Arab roots, when I went to listen to the Chinese music, I, I thought, whoa, I'm hearing these microtones in this music now. I can hear the inflections where they're going. And also the instruments were not very different from each other. Kanun, you know, lap harp in Middle Eastern music, was the counterpart to the koto. 
The oud was the counterpart to the pipa, the nay to the dizzy. Uh, there were percussion instruments and then the vocal method and delivery, the way it was very poetic. I thought, wow, you know, humans are so different, but at the same time, we're not that different from each other. Yeah, I tend to like the idea of humans being variations on a theme. Now, moving on, your interest in learning and sharing what you know with others go hand in hand. Can you talk a little about some of your educational projects? And so I found a program uh, for the School of New Learning at DePaul University. And I went there and I created an undergrad degree at the age of 32. Uh, and I called it Global Music Studies. And I fashioned it around um, aspects of sociology, education, and ethnomusicology. And so I created a core uh, curriculum of classes, uh, created a project, and, and even wrote a little book, a whole entire research project on this. Uh, it was a full proposal that I submitted to an IRB to do a study on the, influ the use of music and drama in foreign language acquisition and how you can use techniques and these sorts of things in, in acquiring language and learning. Because at that time in education, I had been working with an organization called Chicago Arts Partnership in Education, CAPE. And our focus was arts integration. How do you integrate the arts into regular academic subjects so that people can draw out their creativity in, in absorbing the learning? So we call these creativity indicators. Wonderful. Now, Ronnie, how did you become a multi-instrumentalist? I started off as a percussionist because my dad and brother are both percussionists. And those instruments were all around the house. And so that's what I did in band in school, uh, from grade school on up. And I just looked at my dad one day and said, hey, guys, you know, I love playing percussion, but one of us needs to play melody. <laughs> so I split the difference and I picked up the guitar. And uh, I did that for a few years. But then my dad said, look, if we want to have a good family band that is really viable, and it was kind of a business decision, if you will, he said, you should learn to play keyboards. And so I started to take some piano lessons and I got a, a keyboard and I had quarter tones on there and everything. So I started to learn to play but I'm so glad I did because it taught me a lot more on theory. It taught me how to program keyboards, how to sequence, how to do uh, create sounds and sound design. After a while, when I was, you know, like 18, maybe I, I'd say, I kept wanting to play keyboards. Obviously, it became a professional career that I invested money in, but I thought something's missing. Here I was playing Middle Eastern music on instruments made in Japan. And I thought, well, what's the instrument from the Middle East I need to play? And so I picked up the oud. I played guitar for so many years, and I thought, I, I, I can do this. And uh, I thought, I'm going to stick to this instrument. This is the traditional instrument of my culture that will help me get to where I want to go. And what about the voice as an instrument? Do you think singing is good for you? Singing is, is better than just good for you. Singing is healing for you. It's, you know, the first instrument we're all given is our voice. And uh, especially in Middle Eastern music, every time you pick up any other instrument, what you're really trying to do is emulate the human voice on that instrument. Try to sing through your instrument and, uh, you know, channel that expression through your fingertips or whatever other way. But uh, singing is is just healing in many, many ways. And Ronnie, you use your voice not only as an instrument, but also to tell stories. I've explored different avenues. Music started as my, you know, stepping stone, but I've, uh, I've written two plays now uh, about topics that I felt very passionate about. One of them was about the Oud and uh, Ziryeb, who is a ninth century musician who took it to Cordoba, Spain, 
And I wrote about, um, you know, the pluralism of Andalusia, how we can learn from that because we live in pluralistic society today. Uh, I wrote a play about um, the African Muslim diaspora uh, that came here during the transatlantic slave trade and, and its influence on American culture. Uh, how things are always tied and integrated with each other. I, I've taken it upon myself. I've fallen into this place where I want to write and, and do more to help those omitted histories, those very Eurocentric omitted histories, to surface once again. The world of music has always been, I thought, in, in many cultures, just an integral part of their expression, but also of their daily life, and not just entertainment you know today we see music and often a lot of art as simply you know as consumers we consume all of these things and what we really really need in our societies is people who are practitioners and that doesn't mean you have to be a professional getting on stage and entertaining people it could mean you can be that physicist or that teacher or that scientist or whatever and allow music to be your meditative practice to inform how you learn to give you new perspective on, on different things. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation, Ronnie, and you are such an inspiration. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the Voxploration podcast. You can access all episodes on Podbean and also on iTunes. Remember, all episodes are also listed on my website at clarissasad.com, and from there you can access playlists, full tracks, links, and references to each episode by subscribing to my Patreon page. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time.